people develop eating disorders to, to, to cope with uncomfortable feelings that are going on inside of the body. There's some emotion that they're feeling that don't know what to do with. They can't regulate these emotions that they're feeling. And over the hundreds of people that are sore for the eating disorders, there's definitely a trend. and welcome to another HG podcast. I'm Jo Baker and I'm part of the HG team. Today I'm going to be talking to our expert Russell McKenzie about eating disorders and how to help people take back control. Russ is a human givens therapist who's been working in a thriving private practice for the last five years. He's really committed to helping people to take back control of their lives by removing barriers and giving them tools to be able to manage their mental health better. Throughout his therapeutic career, Russell's helped many people suffering with eating disorders and more specifically bulimia and binge eating. We're delighted to have you here today, Russell, to talk to us about this really important topic. Hi, Jax. Thanks for having us on. Um, it would be a real pleasure to, to talk to you guys. Um, as you said, I've been in private practice for a little over five years with my partner, Tanya Lee, who's also a human givens therapist. Um, it's a job that I really, really love, really, really passionate about it. And I find that... Um, that I have a different skill set that I've brought to this. For me, I've been meditating for 20 years, and 10 of those I've been teaching meditation. Um, also, a big fan of mindfulness. So, with the, the guided meditations that I've been doing for a long time, it really, really helps the, the clients that I see with them using the guided, guided imagery. That's really interesting. And how, how did you move from from there into all into working with you know specifically people with with eating disorders? Oh, that's a that's an interesting question, Joe. And uh, I actually came across this by mistake. It, it wasn't on my radar for something to 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 get into. Um, it came about. I worked with uh, a young lady who wasn't for an eating disorder. She she came to me just for a few other issues. But she was a personal trainer. Um, she was quite well known in one of the social media platforms as being a, a coach. And she found that a lot of her clients were struggling emotionally. Um, and she really liked the human therapy that uh, we'd done together. She liked what we talked about and was interested in mental health herself. So she started to send a, a few clients over to me, and some of them had had eating disorders. Now, in the early days, they would only have one session with me, but believe it or not, although I was a little bit nervous about moving into a field that I didn't really have any expertise in at that time, I, I pushed myself out of my comfort zone. You know, it's the same for all of us, Joe. Anything when we do something new, we're a little bit nervous. We, we don't have a pattern of how to do But fortunately for myself, um, the, the first few that I saw most of it, most of the issues were fully were, were trauma related. So for me, I found it relatively easy just to rectify that. And then, then as time went on, this lady was sending me more and more clients. Um, and in the end, she started a little business that she, it was a program, a mental wellness program that was put together. So I was the therapist in this uh, program. And she also, she was the coach, and she had a nutritionist. So but between us, we, we covered all angles. 
And as time went on, it got busier and busier really quickly. So I found myself in a in a perfect position because she was just sending me lots of clients. And I think I don't know the exact number, but over eighteen months, I probably did over seven hundred eating disorder sessions. So it actually really gave me a, a good foundation and. I just kept seeing the same thing that was coming up over and over again. It's a definite trend to it, Joe. Mm. So you, you said that the majority of what you were saying was, um, you know, had had trauma behind it. Um, are you are you seeing any other things um, apart from trauma that can can lead into um, people developing eating disorders, or what sorts of trauma? Is there any particular pattern to the traumas that people are experiencing that, that then led them on to develop eating disorders? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I found that bullying uh, as a trauma that, that came up often, yeah, more often than not. But to, to, to be fair, although we, we saw that regularly, the, the, the traumas were just uh, myriad, they were very, very, very different different in nature. But to be honest, people, I think people develop eating disorders to, to, to cope with uncomfortable feelings that are going on inside of the body. There's some emotion that they're feeling, they don't know what to do with Joda, and can't regulate these emotions that they're feeling. And over the hundreds of people that I saw for the eating disorders, there, there's definitely a trend. But there's a, a particular brain type, um, and these people are more likely, in my mind, to suffer with an eating disorder. Now, these people chronically overthink, they're, they're more prone to eating disorders. They also show a lot of perfectionist personality traits. Um, and I think this, this overlaps with the overthinking. Um, and this, this can make them quite extreme in whatever it is that they do. That they put themselves under huge amounts of pressure to, to be perfect in what they do, or, or in a lot of these cases, to have a perfect body. They can get really, really blinkered by the repetitive faults. They get stuck in a loop of this just emotionally overthinking and they're quite literally putting themselves in a, in a trance-like state. And one of the other things that came, keeps coming up, I found that eating disorders, they, they also have a lot of OCD, as an OCD aspect to it. And where the overthinking is making the person obsessive and makes them feel compelled to carry out this unwanted behaviour. There's, there's, we know that there's lots of people that suffer with OCD, but if their focus is on checking or cleaning, say, when the OCD manifests itself in checking or cleaning. But with eating disorders, if the person is focused not just on the food, but also with their body image too, then the OCD tendencies, it manifests itself in being obsessive about food or exercise, both quite a lot of the time, because a lot of these, they were mainly younger women on this program that I was involved with. They, they they was doing the training as well as the nutrition plus getting the therapy at the same time. So it was really very much about the body image. They wanted to get to a certain shape or a certain size. When our innate needs are not being met in, in healthy, balanced ways, that always, always plays such a massive part. Yeah, and that was one of the questions that we had really was, you know, how can we see this in relation to, um, to, to the, the human given's needs um, model that, that we see about what innate needs are not being met? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And 
our basic emotional needs not being met, they definitely play a part in this. And to my mind, there's there's two major important ones, a couple of needs that play a major role in the eating One of those is the need for control, and the other one is security. Now, when when we do a, an intake form for for new clients with eating disorders, we add a second part to the question: Do do you feel secure? Now, normally in therapy, when we ask if they feel secure, it's about their home or their work environment. But with eating disorders, I find that most of the women that I've seen, they suffer with low self-esteem. And if a person has low self-esteem, they're not feeling secure in the way they look or in their body. So their need for security is compromised, which can place them in a high state of arousal, they're, they're more vulnerable. And i found that with a lot of these clients, they, they've been in this cycle for, for, for a long time and they're, they're highly emotional. They get to a point where they feel like there's just no hope, but there is, there is always hope, Joe. And the, the other major contributing factor is the lack of control. Now, with control, I find that it's, it's proportionate. The more a person feels out of control, the more they need to control. So if a client, for whatever reason, is feeling a lack of control, maybe their environment is a little unstable or maybe it's a little bit toxic, then it makes them right so feel, feel out of control. So when we feel this, what's the easiest thing as human beings we can do to get a sense of control? Mm-hmm. And that is how much or how little food we put into our bodies. And then... I feel that it just becomes a simple equation, Joe, an automatic response to a feeling. So, for example, when I feel X, and in this case X is feeling out of control, I do Y, which is turn to food, or away from food if they're suffering with anorexia. So eating disorders, they're never ever about food itself. They're just not. So control, it plays a massive part in this. And also with the, the OCD tendencies involved, these also increase the feelings of being out of control when their mind is just racing. They've got to check, clean, they're obsessive. They get stuck and they're just going round and round in a circle. So can we really see eating disorders then as a form of addiction? Yeah, it's, it's we, we treat eating disorders just like addictions and I definitely think there's a, a lot of overlaps between eating disorders and addiction so but with food it's, it's slightly different unlike say drinking or drugs we could just stop that Joe and go yeah. right I'm doing that again but food we need it it keeps us alive it keeps us ticking yeah so something much more complex you know we can't do complete abstinence from food can we so a much more complicated thing to to treat. And I know um, in a a podcast we did um, earlier on in the year on anorexia with Martin Dunn, and he was saying the same thing, why it's important not to focus on the food, you know, not about the food. Yeah, no, I totally agree. In in the first stages when when people come for their first session or even as I'm talking to them on the phone in a consultation, I say to them, we probably won't get onto the food for two, three, maybe four or five sessions because... There's too many other things to educate and with this trauma to deal with. And I guess that's often quite a relief for them as well to, to not have to talk about food, because in my experience of working with people with eating disorders, you know, 
the, their brain is about about food all the time you know um, and to be able to come and have a break from having to think about then talk about food um must uh must be quite a surprise i imagine for some people and also a huge relief yeah i think you're absolutely right joe i think it is a is a relief for them and like you say you're, you're absolutely correct these guys are just stuck in that loop where their their whole life can be just centered around buying the foods where they're going to binge or, or or purge if it's safe to do so what foods do they want to do it is it safe to do it it just consumes their whole life just like many other addictions do if you've got say someone that's addicted to drugs they spend major parts of their life just trying to get the money get the drugs and it just it just takes over and i guess that 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 becomes part of the ritual doesn't it of the you know the the preparation the thought process of you know by as you say buying the food um where they're going to get the food um and and, and planning and a, a lot of that has a lot of shame and secrecy woven into it as well oh yeah you're absolutely right yeah regret sometimes they feel disgusted themselves mm. but you know as, as we know joe addiction is they hijack the natural reward centers of the, yeah. the Right. You know, just to clarify for, for, for some of our, our listeners who may not, um, you know, necessarily understand the distinctions between the two. Many people will, but some people may not. Um, can you just explain um, the, the differences of behaviours around bulimia and then binge eating? And, and also, you know, some of the, the nuances that come into that, because I think some people, um, you know, think, oh, well, bulimia is, is, is just eating and, and, and being sick or binge eating is just eating lots of lots of food. So if you can just sort of break that down and, and clarify that. No problem. So bulimia is where we would eat a large amount of food in a short space of time, then we'll purge or make ourselves sick, um, or perhaps use laxatives. Laxatives play a part in this, just to get rid of the food. Or there's another part to it, there excessive amounts of exercise. So basically, those, those activities that are linked with bulimia, it's all about controlling the weight gain so that we do not put the weight on. We want to eat the food because the food in some way is giving them something that's missing in their life, whether that be it might have grafted itself onto attention or intimacy. They might be using it for, for loneliness. It can be boredom. So it, it could be a combination of all three, the, the purging, the laxatives or the exercise and if the purging goes on for long enough it can start to have a negative effect on the person's teeth because mm. of the sick that's coming up the, the acid that they're bringing up from the, from the gut it actually can start to block the teeth and quite a detrimental of longer term effect on the heart as well yeah absolutely it can yeah yeah and it's probably worth saying at this point that they Lots of people get pleasure from, from the purging job. They're getting pleasure from this behaviour because as they're controlling the, the food or the weight gain, even though this pleasure is generally on an unconscious level, as human beings, we like pleasure. <laughs> when, when we find uh, some pleasure, pleasurable activity, we want to keep feeling that high, and that's what motivates us to keep doing it, especially if it's grafted itself onto a, a basic emotional need, like if we're not getting attention. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's bulimia. 
And also you mentioned the element of people getting pleasure from, from the purging. So what is it that happens? How, you know, because most people, when they think about being sick, it's a, it's a horrible thought. It's a horrible feeling. So how does the mechanism work that people gain pleasure from, from the purging? Uh, it's, it's down to the control, Joe. It's really nothing to do with the food or nothing to do with, with the purging itself. It's actually that if they're feeling out of control, which they are, to be eating excessive amounts of food and then and then purging it, they are obviously out of control. But just the, the, the purging in itself, it, it does. It gives them that false sense of, oh, I've got control over my weight, how much I'm putting into my body. And as everything we do as human beings is about getting our basic emotional needs met or protecting them from being taken away. If we've got a, an addictive behaviour like an eating disorder that grafts itself on to an emotional need, we just keep going round and round on a loop. That makes sense. And then the, the difference then between that and, and the binge eating disorder? Yeah, so the binge eating, this is where a person would regularly eat a, a huge amount of food over, over a short period of time until they are uncomfortably full. Um, and like we were saying here, that they take up so much time of their life just planning these little these binges in advance, buying the food for it, planning what they're going to cook, or maybe perhaps it's sometimes it's just junk food. But as we said, like this, this does come with a lot of shame and guilt. Both both behaviours do the shame, the guilt, the, the self hatred. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, and you know, both of them obviously hugely complex and not not as visible as as anorexia. Um, so you know, can often be quite hidden. Oh, absolutely, Joe. I think. Out of the hundreds of people I've seen, I would say maybe a dozen people were overweight, believe it or not, with the binge eating disorder. Most of the people that sat in front of me or over Zoom call, they were slim, they were fit, they was into their gym, they, they, they liked eating well, but they was just stuck in a cycle. If you saw these people passing, passing you in the street, you'd think, wow, this person really, really looks after himself. What an amazing body. But inside their their emotions are through the roof. They're stuck in this cycle. They they don't know what to do. They, they, they can't get themselves out of it. You've you mentioned um, you know the gym and and, and personal trainers um, a, a couple of times, and um, and and also I know that predominantly the people that have have been referred to you or come to you for support have have, have been women. Um, but we know that men um, suffer with eating disorders as well, um, and gradually awareness is is being raised of that and i wonder whether or not you you see less men maybe because less men are feel able to to reach out for help with it um because it has has been seen really as a predominantly female um uh mental health problem and and i hope you know podcasts like this can help to raise awareness um around eating disorders in in men because we do know that it's something um, that, that's on the increase and, and something that we, we see that we've seen in universities as well is um, something that got, that got um, coined bigorexia where you know it was that that focus on on bulking up um, and and you know the, the diet that goes with that but also the mental health impact as well so we know that there's so many different complex 
ways people can suffer with um, issues around food. And, you know, hopefully we can, um, you know, raise awareness um, enough that more men do reach out for help because it is definitely a very real issue. Absolutely. And the, 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 the men that I have seen, um, most of them have been into their fitness and bodybuilders. And again, the, although they are the, they're the same brain type as the women, but the people that are suffer with the eating disorders, they all share similarities. They're overthinkers, perfectionists. And this is, this is just the nature of the people that are drawn to um, activities like, like bodybuilding. They'll push themselves to, they're just extreme in what they do. They get so focused, they get so blinkered in their thoughts that I must get to this point that mm. sometimes they just, they get stuck. They get stuck in, in what it is that they're pursuing. It just becomes unbalanced, Joe. It mm. really does become unbalanced. So when somebody is suffering with, with an eating disorder, um, what kind of impact do we see on, on family? You know, um, I, I, do we see the, the, the secrecy of people retreating away from the family and maybe becoming a bit more cut off? Um, and, or, or do we see, um, you know, people being open with their family and it impacting on them in that way? Yeah, the these eating disorders, they affect everyone. The, the individual, the, the, the family, like you say. How it affects someone's life is, is with, with binging. They often feel that when they're binging, it feels like that something has, has taken over them and they feel totally out of control. It's almost like, a, it's been explained to me, it's almost like having a, an out-of-body experience. And they just keep repeating the, the same pattern. So when I explain to these guys about emotion, that when a person feels highly emotional, they're in that black and white, all or nothing thinking state, and their thinking brain is compromised. Now, coupled with the fact that emotions are designed to motivate us, to move us forward, to take some kind of action. So if we was to take a young woman, for example, arriving home from school after a particularly difficult day, maybe she's a bit anxious, a bit angry or upset for something that's happened at school, and she gets home to an empty, to an empty house, but she's feeling also a little bit lonely in this space. And in that moment, if she turns to food like chocolate to, to feel comfort, and you know, chocolate tastes great, Joe, it makes, it makes us feel good then this food as soothing, it's made her feel slightly better, her emotional levels has lowered. Now, if this keeps going on, if she comes home from school a few days later, it goes on and on and on, and this just becomes a pattern. It's a pattern that's laid down. So in one sense, we've got a young lady that's emotionally aroused from the difficult day. We've now got an automatic response pattern running, coupled with the fact that the emotion is designed to motivate us. Is it any wonder that as she reaches for the chocolate that she feels totally out of control, like she's, she's out of her body? There's, there's a couple of things wearing there. She feels compelled just to carry out this, this activity. And then after she's, she's eaten what she's eaten, the emotional levels have died down, the thinking brain comes back in, back online. Then she, she starts to punish herself. That chattering voice in the mind, that inner dialogue is going, oh, God, why did I do that? I'm never doing that again. I don't need this in my life. And all the other dialogue that runs along. So it's, it's impacting a, a huge one. But then when we, when we look at the binge eating, it's also known as bed binge eating disorder. I often come across a person that 
when they're in a, a binging state, they they flip between binging and restricting. And to my mind, this, this comes down to, to balance. So everything we do, Joe, should be in balance. Everything should be in moderation. But the issue that we have as human beings is that anything that we do that's really difficult, that's it's not easy to, to sustain in our daily life. We'll, we'll give it up, we'll throw the towel in. So with binging and restricting, it's impossible to be in either a restrictive or a binge state all the time. So for many of these guys wanting to look a certain way, they're over-exercising, restricting, eating less and less, and they can't keep it up. They're constantly focused on how they look, or if they're on an eating plan to, to perhaps get to the size that they desire or to put the body shape. And some of these guys, they're, they're existing on four, 500 calories a day, and it's just not possible to sustain. And some of them said to me that they're, they're passing out. They, they feel ill. They're, they're iron levels are low. And sometimes if it goes too far as it does with anorexia, it can affect their menstrual cycle. And they're at this point, as the body it goes into survival mode, it's not concerned with reproduction. It's not as concerned with keeping keeping alive. So when a person's in this restrictive state, they can't keep it up. And now this is where I find that the balance it takes over. So for there to be hot, there has to be cold. One thing cannot exist without the other. For dark to exist, there has to be has to be light. So for a person to exist in a restrictive state all the time, what happens? They, they can't. So they switch between the restricting and the binging. Mm. They're, they're hungry, Joe, in the brain. When, when they come from the restricting state and they start to eat, the brain is like, oh, hooray, the, the famine's over. And they're thinking to themselves, oh, my God, our brains are, I don't know when I'm going to be able to have, have my next meal. And it's almost like when we've switched into the, the natural winter cycle. So if you look back in the day when there was no shops, we were foraging and hunting for the food that we could find. In the summer, food was plentiful, so you didn't have to eat as much. But as you slip into the winter months, then that cycle takes on that actually whatever, find, whatever food that you find, you eat as much of it as you can because you don't know when... When the next meal's coming from. And also, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, those things that we would be drawn to would be the, the sugary, salty, fatty foods that were scarce in nature at that time, which is why that's, you know, what people tend to binge on. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. That's exactly what happens. And unfortunately, this, is, this has never been evolved out of us. And although food is readily available to us 24 hours a time, it's there all of the time, but because we're still running, on those evolutionary patterns that are inside of us. That's what happens to us. So I do say to my clients that are struggling, it's a little bit like being on a seesaw when it comes to balance. As one end goes up, the other end must come down. So we need to be standing in the middle. So at the extremities, it goes up and down. But if we've got one foot either side, although the seesaw already moves, we're in balance. It doesn't affect us. But the problem is with these guys that are suffering, it's impacting their life so much that these patterns that are running in the background, trying to save someone to just find the balance when there is in this emotional state and the binging is causing the restriction and they're just going back and forth 
it's really, really difficult for them. So you really have got to get into a, an emotionally balanced space. And you know, some of these guys, it's impacting their life in such a way like physical pain is taking over. I've had clients say to me that in one single sitting, they will binge six, seven thousand calories in a single sitting. And they are so bloated, Joe, that they're laying on the bathroom floor, their stomach's in agony where they're just, their stomach is just bloated. They, they can't move, they're in, they're in agony. Mm-hmm. And the next day, they, they don't even, they don't want to eat, they can't eat. Then the cycle just begins over and over again. Impacting so much of, of the life, isn't it? And I guess for people in, in education, it's going to be affecting, you know, their engagement with school or university and people who are working as well, in, you know, impacting on, on their employment. It absolutely does. And as you were asking earlier, the, the family life impacts on just so many different areas. Uh, with the people that I saw that was on these, um, these, these, these programs and they had a meal plan, they had a nutritionist, a coach. Certainly any social events with food creates a lot of anxiety. A lot of these sufferers feel themselves like they, they do have an addiction and if they're doing well, they end up slipping into a state of constant fear of returning back to that binge restrict cycle or the binging and the, um, and the purging. So what do they do? They control it by sticking to a really, really rigid calorie intake. So a meal out where you can't control exactly what it is that you're eating causes these guys massive amounts of anxiety. Well, that's impacting on people's social lives. They might be cutting off from friends more as well. That sense of, you know, there's more human needs not being met, isn't it? The the, the exchange of attention with, with human beings is limited. Absolutely, yeah. The sense of community starts to go out the window. They're seeing their friends, they're seeing their family less and less. So basically anything, any social event that has food involved, they do their very best to avoid it because the emotions that it brings up, they just they don't know how to cope. And there's a lot of these guys that are on these, these, these meal plans that I spoke to they would be overthinking. They get themselves into such a state like with, with rehearsing negativity about what's going to happen when they get there, oh, perhaps this will happen, perhaps that will happen. They're already rehearsing negative behaviours. Like by the time they get to the restaurant, if they actually get there, they're in such a state, they, they don't want to read, they can't enjoy themselves. Joe, like you say, it does. It compromises a lot of their basic emotional needs, which just makes them more anxious, more depressed, more addicted. And it's so hard, isn't it? You see people who, because there's such a stigma um, uh, around it, people not feeling able to to open up and to share with, with friends or family. And so, you know, when I've worked with people, I've seen that friends and family um, don't don't know what's going on so and, and, and don't understand why somebody doesn't want to be socializing with them anymore and it can lead to all sorts of interpersonal difficulties yeah yeah you're absolutely right um i've come across people that will only binge eat at night because it's safe for them to do that there they don't want people to know. They don't know how to tell their loved ones that this is going on. They some some of them feel that actually if they're, they're in a new relationship, if they tell their partner that they're actually stuck in this binge restricted or purging cycle, 
that their new partner's going to leave them. So what do they do? They try and protect themselves from that. They're trying to keep their needs intact by staying with this partner. So they start to do it in, in secret. And then there's just an added pressure that they're putting themselves under. Is that they, they start to, to live a life. So how do you help? If somebody comes to see you, you know, and they're, they're ready to, to start to make a change in their life, they've got to the, the point where they, they know that they need some help. How do, you, how do you help them? How do you break this cycle? That's a really good question, Joan. There's, there's a few different aspects to this. So if any disorders are treated, I need to uh, identify what the behaviour is giving them, what what they're getting from keeping this, this behaviour that they don't really want to do. We need to look at how balanced their, their lives are and also look at the eating disorder as a whole in terms of the, the eating disorder being a trauma in, in its own right. Now, first and foremost, you need to instill some hope into these guys. So some of it, they've had quite a lot of therapy before, some of it helpful, some of it perhaps not. Lots of people in eating disorders, they tend to go to group therapy, maybe from the NHS, uh, which has focused on quite a lot of the logical aspects of disorder, which can help for a while as they can manually override the pattern. But as we know, it's always emotions that motivate us. So the first thing I'll do is, is lower their emotional level, because if they've had therapy for, before and it hasn't worked, then they're generally at their, their wit's end. They don't know where to turn. They're not sure that they're having another going therapy with a different therapist. Now they don't know if this is going to work. So just by lowering their emotional level and arming them with the information about what's going on in their brain and what's happening to them and letting them know that we deal with this stuff all of the time and that, that they're not alone. Just, just normalise what's going on for them. You can see them physically relax in front of you. And just as you begin to educate them about what's going on in the brain, it takes the fear out of what's happening. To when we don't know what's happening in our own minds, it's really frightening, Joe, really frightening. So they start to think, oh, perhaps perhaps I'm not broken. Perhaps there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is always light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes they, they just can't see it. So the next thing I would do is look at their emotional needs, how well these needs are being met. Do they have support? Are they working? How, has their self-esteem? That's another huge thing that constantly keeps coming up, people with low self-esteem. So you've got to raise someone's self-esteem and you can, you can do that pretty quickly. I use a lot of guided imagery for this. We look to see if there's any barriers in the way stopping a person's needs getting met. Just a... a we use the rewind technique for any traumatic memories. There's another technique I use, the, the layers, where I get the person to drop down a particular feeling that they've got in their body, dropping down through through the layers until they find an empty space and the, the negative feeling in the body has, has gone, has dissipated. I find that this works really well for the lifts. And we're looking to get to the to the emotion that's driving the eating disorder behaviour. And for this, I use the technique that all human givens therapists use, Joe, and that's the, the affect bridge, the emotional bridge to the pattern. This is just this, such a great tool to have in the box. But I found, especially in the, in the early days with eating disorders, you've got to be a little bit careful because 
if I'm trying to get the person in touch with the emotion so we can get back to the memory of to, to the source of it or a, a particular memory that's causing an issue, when you get them to rehearse perhaps the, the last time that they've binged, uh, where, where they feel that emotional reaction in their body, and then we ask them, when they say, let's say, the, the, the feelings in the chest, you, you ask them, okay, what's, what's the emotion underneath that feeling? It's always emotions that drive feelings. Now, a lot of the time, they would say they get feelings of disgust or frustration. So when you get a person to focus on the dis- disgust or frustration and get the unconscious mind to float gently back to, to the source of this issue, what memories is it linked to? When, when were they? Where, where were they when they felt this before? I found that I would be going round in circles, round and round, and nothing was really coming up, nothing that I could see that was actually causing this, this, this behaviour, this eating disorder. And I soon quickly realised that actually that these, a lot of these emotions that they were feeling were present. There was nothing to do with the source of when, when this eating disorder started. What was it that started this eating disorder? It's how they're feeling now. They're, they're angry. They don't want their life to be like this. They're frustrated that they're in this space. They can be a little bit disgusted with themselves, ashamed. So if for any one of the human givens therapists that uses the affect bridge with people with eating disorders, just, just keep a really, really open mind, really open mind. And don't be disarmed if you find yourself going around in circles. The person, when they're talking to you, when they're explaining what's going on, they're, they're giving us the answers. We just we just need to put our detective's hat on and just sit and relax and just listen because all, all the answers are, are there. That's really helpful. Thanks so much for sharing that, Russell. And it's one of the things that there, there are certain things when, when Gareth and I are, are teaching um, you know, new therapists that we say, you know, there are, there are certain things that you need to have had a considerable amount of experience of working with mild to moderate um, mental health difficulties before you move on to and eating disorders is one of them and I think that's a really good example as to why it's good to have a, a lot of mileage in mild to moderate work before you you move on to some more complex cases yeah, like yeah I totally agree Joe yeah and uh, to, to be honest um, the people that I've been treating I don't think you know that there has not been one person that I've treated with an eating disorder that didn't have at least one, two or three traumatic experiences. Perhaps not that was driving the behaviour, but all the same, it was stuff that was coming up in the affect bridges that was actually causing them a problem. So as it comes up, you know, human givers therapist, we deal with whatever comes up in front of us. So you do really know need to know what you're doing with, with trauma. Yeah. And I guess, you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. So if therapists haven't worked um, with with eating disorders before and somebody comes along to them, then it's really something to, you know, work closely with your supervisor on or, um, you know, actually have a look at the supervisors and see if there's anybody who has, you know, experience of of doing a lot of work with people with eating disorders and and have a chat with them before you, you know, embark on on any any work. Yeah, Totally agree. Yeah, it's not something to be entered into lightly. And I've found in my experience talking to these guys that actually a lot of the patterns that are causing, a lot of the patterns that are running, that are driving these eating disorders, they can be quite 
tricky to, to find. They can be really, really subtle. So just keep your detective's hat on. It's just You're just sitting with them. You're both just detectives just looking for what it is that's, that's driving you. Just, just be punching. So, if somebody's worried about a, a friend or, or family member or somebody that you know at work, a colleague, maybe that, you know, if they're worried and suspect that they may be suffering from um, an eating disorder, how can they help? Is there anything that they can do? Are there things that they should avoid saying um, or avoid doing? Yes, there, there is, Joe. There's a few things you can do. Um, now, we're, we're not all therapists, so if you suspect that someone is suffering from an eating disorder, and just approach it really, really gently. Um, and the thing is, with with eating disorders, they all feel that they're out of control. So if you sit someone down and start to tell them, "Oh, you should be doing this. Perhaps do this. You need to do that," and start telling them what to do, it just it just makes them feel more out of control. And what happens? It's directly proportional when they're feeling out of control. It's directly proportional to then how much control we need to feel. So it can. If you approach it in an aggressive way, telling them what to do, it can it can actually make them worse. So one of the best things you can do is just be there to, to support them, Joe. Just just listen. Don't offer any advice. And look, most most caregivers are not experts, and that's totally cool. Just let them know that whatever they need, that you're there to support them. Just be really, really patient with them. And we understand that their, their household might be tense. And as I said, some of them are emotionally, with an eating disorder, sorry, they're on an emotional roller coaster. So their mood is, it goes up and it can go really, really down. So when you're talking to these guys, just try not to get drawn into everything that they're saying, because when a person's in an emotional space, so we all do. We don't think clearly, and the stuff that comes out of our mouth isn't necessarily true. And people are in danger of taking everything that people says as personal as, or as the truth. So just be aware that this person is struggling and in this moment in time at the moment that they are just not themselves. So you, you talked about some of the work that you did in the early days where you would only really get one session with, with people. Obviously the private work you're doing now, you, you, you and Tanya have you know, more scope to see people for, for longer. Um, are, there, are there any particular um, success stories that that stand out for you, and you know how successful um, is is using human givens treatment. Do you find um, you know in in comparison to other other approaches that that are around there? Fortunately for us, we we love the human givens, and like many other human givens therapists, we can get a lot of success. And yeah, there is a story I could share with you. This um, was a young girl. She was in her early twenties, and she was on the program that I was involved with. So she was receiving help with her nutrition and her training from the other coaches. So between us, we cover from all angles. And from the minute that I sat down with this lady, her, her mood was just really low, just really flat. And to be honest, she looked like she, she'd given up. Um, we talked and we did some guided injury. We talked about a little bit about food and a few things come up. There was some issues with um, her mum and dad splitting up when she was quite young. Uh, this was something that was affecting her. And this, this young lady, she was suffering with binge eating. Um, she, she was really emotionally intelligent. And she'd worked out for herself that she was emotionally eating. So 
we did a few sessions. I gave her lots of information about the brain and did the, the rewinds from the parents splitting up from when she was a child. And it got to about session three. And I'm looking at her and I kept thinking that there was something that was not quite right. Her mood was still really flat. I felt like there was something she wasn't telling me and she was still crying quite a lot. And we were talking this day and I asked her about her school life and she just burst into tears and when the tears subsided I got her to tell me about what was going on, what happened at school. And then it turned out that she was really badly bullied. She was around 12 years old and she had three friends that she saw in and out of school and she felt they was pretty close. But then at one point, for no reason that she could figure out, these three friends of hers, they started to talk behind her back. Um, and if these three girls were sitting down at lunch and my client would go over to them like she did many times, they wouldn't look at her, they wouldn't talk to her, they would just leave and sit somewhere else. And this, this young lady, she thought that she, through this she was a terrible person. She thought she'd done something horrific to them that she was unaware of that she'd hurt these, these young girls' feelings. But, you know, they, they were just bullies and they were leaving her out. And it turns out as time went on, it was just one girl in the group that was controlling the other two. And it was her that was, that was just the, the ringleader of it all. So from then on, with my client, she spent a lot of time on her own. She locked herself away. She, whenever she was hurting so much, she, she shut down. She went into a protective state so just to make sure this didn't happen to her again. And the, the knock-on effect of that, the byproduct was that she just refused to make any more friends. So she started to go through her school life just on her own. She got more and more, more lonely. You know, when, when we all get hurt, Joe, we can shut down, we do we do that, just we go into that protective state. Mm. So she she grew up from this 12-year-old young girl. She, she had a boyfriend, she had a family, but it wasn't quite enough. There was, we need our friends, everyone needs friends, Joe. There's some things that she didn't want to talk to, to her boyfriend around, and all her needs were were tied up in, with her boyfriend and just her family. All her needs were just, all her eggs were in one basket. So what we did was, as, as this all came to the surface, we just rewound the, the whole experience, the whole bullying experience. And the next time I saw her, it was, it was like talking to a different woman, Joe. She was at work, she was more chatty, she was engaging with people, she was giving and receiving more attention, just she was sleeping better and it, her whole demeanour had changed rather than someone sitting there just looking really in a low mood, just sunk down with her head held low, she was sitting upright, she was engaging and she said that her, her mood was just brilliant, she was laughing more, and she'd worked out that now the binging had stopped for all of that time, now her emotional emotions had levelled out, she was in such a good space, she'd worked out that for all of those years she had just been using the food to cope 
the emotions and now her emotions had leveled out and the, the, the bullying trauma was gone, which was underpinning everything. The bullying trauma was underpinning absolutely all of those behaviors. Just it all fell away. And then she she had another two sessions booked with me, but she messaged me and said she didn't need it. She was in such a good place. She and I, I never saw her again. Oh, that's incredible. And and actually, as we record this, we're we're in anti-bullying week. Um, and and so this will this will go out after anti-bullying week. But I think it's just a, a, another really um important thing to highlight just how damaging um bullying can be long term. Yeah, absolutely. It has a really negative impact on people's lives. They they feel worthless, they feel like they've done something wrong. They feel there's there's something wrong with them that sometimes that they don't deserve any friends. Yeah. And it just it just lays down a pattern and if they go into a protective state like this young woman did, it stops them from from living a full life, from from living a life where they can thrive rather than just about surviving, which is what lots of people do in this space. They're just about surviving. And that sounds like such a rewarding success story. Um, you know, if if we can be, um, you know, successful with a client to the point where they go, you know, I don't need you anymore. Um, that's <laughs> what it's all about, really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is, Jeff. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we're we're running out of time now. But is is there anything else that that you wanted to add? Anything that you you thought was important to say? Or I mean, you, we've we've covered so much ground here, and it really has been brilliant talking to you and understanding more about the way you work. Um, and you know the approaches that, that you use but was there anything else that you wanted to add yeah i think so joe i think when when we're walking along the street and we see someone that perhaps looks a little bit fitter than us a little a little bit slimmer and you know we can slip into that state of desire or i'd like to be like that i'd like to look like this and we kind of just need to constantly remind ourselves that actually these people probably got their own struggles in the experience of our these these people that are really slim and fit, they are struggling with their own eating disorders. So when we're walking down the road and we're comparing ourselves to others, just perhaps just remind yourself that actually just it's a bit like being on a motorway, but we're actually we're all in our own vehicle. Just stay in your own lane, you're you're heading towards your own destination. And it doesn't concern us what, what other cars people are driving, how fast they're going, how quickly they're going to get there, if they're going to get there before us. They're on their own their own little journey. So just, just stay in your own lane and just, just enjoy your own journey. And I guess that's it. You know, we can't ever know what other people are going through. And, uh, and we all carry, you know, our, our own burdens at, at some point, for sure. Thank you, Russ, for covering such an important topic. I know that your knowledge and advice will really have helped uh, our listeners. Russell also wrote an article for the Human Givens Journal, which we're going to allow our listeners to read. You'll be able to find the link for this in the podcast descriptions. It's a fantastic read um, and really supports what we've spoken about today. If you'd like to discover more about the Human Givens approach or you're interested in becoming a Human Givens therapist like Russell, then please visit humangivens.com forward slash college. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.